everybody. Welcome to our first episode of Chronicles of Curiosity. I'm Mason. And I'm Katie. And we are a couple who loves to talk about everything paranormal, true crime, anything weird. This week, we thought we'd start off by just kind of introducing ourselves. Um, Again, my name is Mason. Um, Katie and I are married. We've been married for a year and a half now um, and decided to to dive into the podcast um, as a hobby and uh, because it interests us, the topics that we're going to be talking about throughout this series. Um, So I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you listening. Um, Katie, do you have anything to add? Um, No. I mean, did we want to talk a bit about ourselves, like how we got interested in True crime, paranormal, spooky stuff. Sure. So I was always interested. I loved horror movies. Even growing up, I wasn't really allowed to watch them, but I still still like them. Halloween has always been my favorite wait, holiday. Wait. How did you know that you liked them if you weren't allowed to watch them? Well, they would be on TV sometimes mm-hmm. or, you know, would come across like a, a VHS of one. Mm-hmm. And that, that definitely sparked that definitely sparked it for me. Yeah. Okay. And just as I got a little bit older as well, um, I started appreciating the holiday Halloween a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, dressing up a lot less as you get older, but everything else that surrounds it, haunted houses, horror movies, everything like that, I, I love. Mm-hmm. I think my interest in, like, I think it started more with true crime and it came from... Me, probably. No, no, because we didn't meet until we were, what, like 14 or something like that. Something like that. It definitely started when I was younger. I don't know. I remember being like anywhere from ages 7 to 10 and my mom would watch like 2020 and stuff like that in the evenings and I'd always like feel nervous or feel a little bit scared but also I was like very much intrigued and I know as I got older that like kind of unsettled like nervousness went away and I was just like, I just, I want to, I want to, I want to know what's happening here. I want to know what this is about. 2020 was the gateway drug? Yes, that and also People Magazine, because my mom always, to this day, she gets People Magazine, and I always wanted to know that I was only interested in, like, the the mysteries or the crimes or whatever. I didn't really care about, like, the celebrities, et cetera, stuff like that, so, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, this week we wanted to, to start off um, with a familiar topic, at least for me. Um, wanted to start off by talking about Penhurst Asylum. Penhurst Asylum, located in Spring City. Uh, it's roughly 35 miles east of Philadelphia, if you're unfamiliar. It takes about an hour to get there with traffic, um, especially the highway around there. <laughs> is oh, a nightmare yeah. um, if you're not from the area. Uh, the asylum was formerly known as the Eastern State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. That's a long-ass name. Yes, yeah. Early 20th century, um, when the Pennsylvania government was coming up with these solutions um, for the overpopulation of disabled individuals, mm. um, there was a, a very large population in Pennsylvania at the time, especially Philadelphia. Um, so the asylum itself uh, was opened in 1908. Um Again, formerly known as the Eastern State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. Uh, The total size of the campus, just in case you're having a hard time picturing the area, uh, the total size of the campus is around 112 acres at the time of opening in 1908. Um, But after a couple couple of decades of expansion, uh, the total area ended up being 14, a little over 1,400 acres by the time that, uh, that the institution closed. Um, in case you're having trouble picturing 1,400 acres, it is a decent amount larger than Central Park in New York City. Central Park is around 843 acres. 
Oh wow, yeah. So it's it, it's pushing double. Yeah, yeah. The size al- of Central Park. Almost six uh, six hundred acres larger than Central Park. And if you've ever walked down Central Park, you know it's a long ways. Mm. Um, Katie and I walked down from Columbus Circle to the Natural History Museum, which is about halfway down the park. And we were dying by the time yeah. we got there. I know we don't walk much. But. Yeah. And it was, it was like, what, September or something like that? So the weather was comfortable. It was cool enough out. It wasn't like the middle of July when it was 98 degrees. We'd have bigger troubles if it was July in New York oh, City than the snow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we'd last very long. So I wanted to start here by just getting into a little bit of the history of Pennhurst Asylum. Uh, It has a very storied background. In the early 20th century, again, Philadelphia had a large population of individuals with uh, cognitive disabilities. So the state government decided to build the large institution to house them and theoretically provide specialized care that other existing facilities could not. At the time, most of these vulnerable individuals were put away in prisons, reformatories, and almshouses. Uh, It really just depended on what background you came from. Uh question yes what's an almshouse almshouse is a uh basically a community center a communal housing facility uh where they would house people who cannot sustain themselves for one reason or another okay uh maybe they lost a fortune you know maybe they lost a a spouse or a loved one who was supporting them financially okay okay they'd be placed in these almshouses um but they were getting overrun and there was no specialized care. So that's when Pennsylvania stepped in and decided to build the facility. So in the, good for in, them. In, in the first few years of operation, uh, it was considered a state-of-the-art facility and was seen as a model for other institutions. Uh, it was designed to be entirely self-sufficient, had its own power plant, sewage treatment plant, and it even had its own farm where they would grow their own food. Wow. At the height of its operations, the Pennsylvania Railroad um, even added a station along its route up the East Coast. They named it Penhurst Station because they Naturally. Couldn't, couldn't think of anything better. Oh, did I have a question. When did they change the name from Eastern State Institution of the etc.? I'm not Do sure. You know? No, I'm guessing it would be probably hmm. the 40s or 50s, somewhere around that time. Okay. There was a big push in that those decades, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, Freudian theory was becoming very popular at the time. Mm, People were starting to think of psychology as not just like a a pseudoscience. People were really diving into the, the actual, you know, the actual possibilities of what can be done, you know, psychology and and counseling. So my guess would probably be around that time. Oh, okay. Uh, the, The railroad, the Pennsylvania railroad that ran through the asylum, um, it was used to transport items like coal, which were vital to keeping the the power plant running, keeping the facility, you know, the lights on, the heat on in the Mm, facility. Um, But for the most part, they they did grow their own food. They were very self-sufficient. Many of the patients actually had specific duties that they were assigned, depending on ability. So if you could could walk freely and if you had, you know, a, a decent amount of strength that you exhibited... You would probably be put in the fields, probably gardening, yeah, growing food, that sort of thing. Other other places where patients were sent were the laundry department, um, the kitchens, um, you know, maintenance facilities, that mm, sort of thing. Okay, so they, they okay. really were their own little community. They kind of they kind of ran themselves good for for, them. for a good number of years. Well, you'll see later, maybe not the best thing oh. that they that they had so little oversight and so little oh, influence from okay. the outside. Uh, so for for all the inv- advancements that were introduced, nothing could help the overpopulation issue. Mm. So the asylum, when it was built in 1908, was originally 
built to house roughly 500 residents, but by the 60s, there were over 2,800 residents. Holy, okay. Significantly more than what it was built for, of course. They had expanded since then, but nowhere near to the level that would be able to support 2,800 patients. So upon arrival, when a patient would arrive at the facility, they would be separated into three categories, and they would base these categories off their physical and mental health. So they would be assessed by these quote unquote doctors as they would come in, you know, be coming in. Okay. Um, they were put number one into the imbecile or insane category. Then after that, they would be again categorized into epileptic or quote unquote healthy. Mm. And third, they would be categorized, and this is interesting, they would be categorized on their quality of their teeth. So that they had... Of their of their teeth? Of their teeth. If they had good teeth, they would be separated into one group. If they had poor teeth, they would be separated into another. That is so unusual. I couldn't find a ton of information on why that was the case. Yeah. Um, but I know, I, I have heard other instances where they would separate. Hmm. Um, That's really Based weird. on teeth. So with the the asylum started out with good intentions. They really did. I mean, the government stepped in. They had a plan. Um, but really, you would see just kind of human nature take over. And again, the overpopulation issue was, was a big, big problem, as you'll see as we go forward here. Mm, okay. So once the patients were categorized, they would then be sorted into different wings and dormitories um, where they would live and theoretically receive treatment for their, for their maladies. Mm. Theoretically. Um, theoretically. Um, so I, I mentioned the overpopulation issue, and because of that, abuse was not uncommon. Um, so while the hospital was still in, in operation, um, abuse really did run rampant from the, the caretakers. Oh. Uh, according okay. to Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance, it was reported uh, that an 18-year-old patient assaulted another patient who had Down syndrome oh. after the assault. The staff punished the patient by leaving him in a quote-unquote... Punished the 18-year-old? Punished the 18-year-old, yeah. Okay. Punished the 18-year-old by leaving him in a quote-unquote seclusion room for six consecutive days. Oh, my... It's unclear okay. whether he had access to food or water, I would assume, but it, it was uh, unclear it's in the probably research. not safe to assume in this particular yeah. situation. <laughs> that's, yeah, sadly, that's a good point. So physically binding a patient um, was another common punishment. So mm. strapping them to beds, chairs the floor even oh um, this resulted out of understaffing issues so patients would be unruly they would be dangerous and there weren't enough staff to keep them all in check and in order to solve that they like strap them to bed floor or wall right <laughs> okay yeah. so that sounds horrible enough but there was just weird there was a, a log report from 1976 uh, that really shows how extreme the bindings were so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that report month to month as it, as it is listed. June of 1976, patient one was restrained for 651 hours. This is one patient? This is one patient for one month. Okay, how many hours are in a month? I'm not sure, but I did the math here at the end. Yeah, okay, um, I'll let you carry on then. <laughs> so after June, the log jumps ahead a month to August of 1976. Mm. August of 1976, uh, 720 hours restrained. Somebody had a rough August. September, 674 hours. And October, 600, excuse me, 647 hours. Oh, best so, record yet. Well done in October. So for everybody that is uh, trying to do the math in their head, because yes, I was trying to when I was reading yeah. this, um, it's over 112 days of what? being constantly restrained, day and night, 
That is 112 so days sad. out of a four-month period. Oh, my goodness. That is so sad. It was reported later that the patient was so distraught that she actually blinded herself by oh. gouging her eyes out. Could have used a warning for that. And if you weren't, if you were a patient and you weren't being bound, you were likely left in complete isolation and neglect. Oh. Many patients would spend days locked in their rooms, and, and many times they would not have any access to food or water. Oh, that's so messed up. Some patients with more intense disabilities, they weren't even able to call for help or oh. to get out of their beds or wheelchairs or, or whatever they were oh constrained gosh. to. So they were literally stuck in a prison of their own room. And they couldn't call for help and at all. They couldn't call for help. And there were a good number of patients that had no mental disabilities, only physical disabilities. Okay. So I want you to picture yourself being a disabled person, uh, maybe being wheelchair bound, yeah. unable to use your legs, being surrounded by violent patients, screaming and yelling 24-7 from their rooms. That's insane. And if, again, if you're having a hard time picturing this, each of the rooms were all just complete concrete. There was no carpet. There was no wallpaper or paint. So like a prison cell? Like a prison cell, essentially, yeah. Do we know, did each patient have their own room? I, I would assume not. Yeah, just based on the over... Yeah, yeah. I, I would assume from, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but during during my tour there, there were several several large rooms that looked more like an orphanage that you would see, like the stereotypical with, with many beds set up in a row. Oh, I understand. There okay. were other smaller rooms that, um, that did have their own bed. Mm. maybe a little sink but it, it did look sink but toilet not included uh I, you know honestly i can't remember okay i have photos like i'll pull up the photos later yeah, on but you should post them on um instagram yeah yeah i will I'll, I'll post them um by the way thank you for mentioning chronicles of curiosity on instagram um chronicles of curiosity pod on tiktok we're also we'll be on facebook any social media twitter um give us a follow it would be appreciated yeah, we would appreciate but back to the bindings shameless plug anyway uh, so th these examples that I gave patients being bound, locked in their rooms, that sort of thing, uh, they were really only a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of the hospital's history. There were also much more nefarious uh, warning. reports. Just real quick. Uh, reports of rape, um, beatings, verbal abuse, essentially oh any gosh. anything you can think of uh, to degrade another human. It was being done there. And it was mostly like the workers towards the patients or... No, unspecified. It was almost entirely the workers, the staff toward the patients, wow. particularly the abuse. Um, there was there were fights that would break out uh, amongst the patients. Again, uh, many of them were troubled. But they, as you'll see a little bit later here, when I get into the, the trial that occurred after, a lot of the patients, they weren't categorized as assaults when a patient would attack another patient. Okay. They were categorized as fights or skirmishes, that sort of thing. Skirmish. But where the court really discerned the abuse was from the staff to the patient specifically. Okay. I understand. Okay. So in 1968, there was an expose produced by a local Philadelphia TV station. Uh, this was the first time since opening in 1908 that the broader public had become aware of the horrible conditions and mistreatment. And, and by 1968, conditions were horrible. Oh, Patients were living in their own filth. There was an extreme understaffment. You know, this is where a lot of the 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 rapes and the the abuse, the verbal abuse, the physical abuse. That's this is when a lot of that was happening in this time period. Okay, just because there wasn't enough supervision or accountability, right? Perhaps or right. good people, right? 
Right. And and there were good people that worked there. Don't right. get me wrong. There were many good people. Most of them were good. If nothing else, they had good intentions and they couldn't deliver on them because of conditions outside of their control. But don't get me wrong. There were plenty of staff members who took advantage of the situation. Yes. Some clear scuzz balls. <laughs> uh, so again, this was the first time that the public had become aware of these conditions. The facility was finally shut down in 1987 almost 20 years after the expose was run. Wow. And it came after additional reports from newspapers, documentaries, publications like Time Magazine had uh, had published stories on the conditions. Good. Um, so there, there was an extensive court case that led to the closure of the facility. Oh. Case was known as the Halderman case. And if you read through the transcripts of, of the case, it is harrowing. They, they break down dozens, if not hundreds, of patients' experiences, oh. um, either firsthand or secondhand. Okay. Um, just the, oh, the horrible gosh. abuse. And I, I can't imagine for some of the families that must have been there during the trial, you know, realizing what their friends or family members had gone yeah. through during their time there, especially the ones that were unable to verbalize right. just how horrible right. it was or... or you know, what it, what had actually taken place there. Right. And it's a real likelihood that so many of these family members thought that they were putting their loved ones in a safe place to be well taken care of, better taken care of than maybe they could have themselves as the family. And to hear that, that's just got to be devastating. Oh, absolutely. And from, from what I understood and from what I still understand about this, this topic of mental illness today, half of the family members that place uh, that place these individuals in these assisted living centers, we'll call them. Mm. Half have very good intentions and they want what's best for the individual mm-hmm. with disabilities. And the other half would rather push them away. Mm. It's a sad reality. Um, I, I mean, I would, assume, so I would assume that this would be the case as well at Pennhurst. Um, many did want proper treatment, but many did, most did not receive it, sadly. Yeah. So due to the 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 turbulent history of the asylum, there has naturally been a large amount of paranormal activity that's been experienced there. Oh, um, It's not uncommon for traumatic events to be linked to paranormal activity. For yeah. anybody who's an enthusiast, this is, not, this is nothing new to yeah. understand. Most of the most haunted places in the world have been connected to some sort of traumatic event yeah. at one point or another. Um, so to, to not make light of this, the patients there did receive incredibly horrible treatment. There have been countless reports of paranormal activity at the site, including ghost sighting, strange no- noises, uh, even physical interactions with the entities, uh, things like bumping up, a, feeling like you're bumping up against someone, uh, someone tapping your shoulder, maybe a, a strong breeze. Uh, so I, with that, I wanted to get into some of the, the ghosts, some of the apparitions that have been associated with Penhurst over the years. Mm. One of the most popular is the story of the quote-unquote shadow man. So the, the shadow man is said to be a dark, shadowy figure that appears in various locations throughout the site. Witnesses have described the figure as being very tall with a long coat and a fedora hat and appearing to be male. A fashion icon. <laughs> Uh, many people believe that the shadow man is the ghost of a former employee or patient at Penhurst Asylum. Okay. There's been no confirmation of which. There have been a number of theories about his identity, um, but nothing confirmed. Some believe that he may be the ghost of a former maintenance worker who died on the site. 
Oh. While others believe that he may be the spirit of a patient who was mistreated or abused while at the institution, um, there's been a large number of sightings of the Shadow Man over the years, probably the most out of any other entity. Many visitors uh, report feeling an eerie sense of being watched or followed while on the premises. Uh, Some people have also reported feeling sudden drops in temperature, hearing strange noises, uh, just a general sense of unease after a sighting of the Shadow Man as well. Ah, okay. Uh, Another ghost that I wanted to discuss is uh, simply known as Mary. Mary is believed to be the spirit of a former patient who was kept in restraints for much of her life. Again, going back to the abuse that many very real patients experienced. Yeah. Um, there's been numerous reports of Mary's ghost around the, around the campus as well. They generally include sightings uh, of a woman in a white dress want, slowly wandering the halls. Okay. So, according to the legend, Mary was a patient at Pennhurst Asylum uh, who was left to die alone in restraints in her small room. Uh, legend says that Mary died from neglect and was never given a proper burial. And oh, that's so sad. As a result, uh, her spirit is said to haunt the site to this day. Yeah, I don't blame her for that. Wow. Uh, visitors report feeling a strong sense, a strong sense of presence in the room where Mary was said to have died. Um, some people also claim to have heard the sound of a woman crying or wailing. While others have reported uh, feelings of cold spots and sudden temperature drops in in various rooms, specifically the room where she was said to have died. Oh, okay. Uh, It's even been reported uh, that some people see the apparition, the full-on apparition of a woman dressed in a white gown or nightgown. Uh, It's generally believed to be the ghost of Mary. Okay. Wow. It's not totally clear whether the legend of mary is based on a real person who was a patient at penhurst asylum or whether it's purely fictional creation at least the character yeah i i don't believe the paranormal sightings were fictional but at at least the backstory Uh, however the the story of mary has become an important part of the site's ghostly lore whether or not she was a real patient okay i don't think that matters too much no if you're seeing someone in like a white gown or white white nightgown at a spooky location like that it's just you're just gonna assume exactly or at least i would personally you're gonna assume ghost assume ghost always always assume ghost <laughs> always assume ghost <laughs> anytime you hear a noise at night assume ghost assume and it, ghost. if it's anything else i i would be disappointed if it was anything else but most people would not be most people would be happy i would be combination relieved and disappointed okay yeah because that's... it's like okay good i don't have to face a ghost you don't right have now. to deal with this ghost stand in here in the kitchen in my undies at two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to share uh, one last ghost story regarding Penhurst Asylum. Uh, the last story that I wanted to share is of the faceless man, uh, Ooh, which personally spooky. I think is the scariest. He's said to be a ghost who roams the tunnels beneath Penhurst. There's tunnels? Oh, more, more on that later. Okay. Beneath Penhurst and is obviously known for his lack of face. Tracks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some people believe that the faceless man may be the ghost of a former employee who committed suicide in the tunnels. Oh, damn. While I was doing the research, it occurred to me that maybe he committed suicide uh, because he either could not stand to watch the abuse that was happening to patients, or maybe he couldn't live with himself after participating. That's a good thought. In some of the atrocities. Um, makes you wonder. There have been 
numerous reports of EVPs or electronic voice phenomena captured at Pennhurst. Um, these are recordings of voices that are not normally audible to the human ear, but can be picked up by recording specialized recording equipment. So one particularly chilling EVP captured um, features a, a woman's voice saying, I don't want to die. Oh, that's heartbreaking, but also really spooky. There have also been countless reports of unex- unexplained footsteps, disembodied screams. Oh my gosh. And again, the aforementioned strange cold spots throughout the facility. These are all events that you'd find at a notably haunted location yeah. in Pennhurst. It doesn't disappoint. Something about the, the phrase disembodied screams just it gives me the worst goosebumps. Like, what do you picture when you hear that? Because I picture, go, you go first. I picture uh, like a, a banshee screaming. A banshee, in, at okay. Night. Yeah, okay. yeah, like a chupacabra okay. or La Llorona. Oh, yeah. We'll have yeah. to talk about her later. Yeah. That's another, um, that's another episode. Yeah, we definitely want to cover that one. Yes. Um, I kind of picture like a um, representation of, what is it, Van Gogh, his scream. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a yeah. perfect visualization. Yeah, but obviously with sound. That painting, as a, as a kid, that painting always scared me. There's something unsettling about it. It's a little uncanny. Mm-hmm. But now I appreciate it because it is a little bit... Art. It's a little bit strange. Uh, so... In October of 2015, I was actually able to visit Penhurst Asylum uh, for their annual Halloween event. I went with some family and some friends. And we had only just started dating very briefly in that time frame, so I did not go. (laughs) (laughs) We had been dating at that point uh, for maybe a month. At most. We started dating in October 2015, so it was probably, yeah. Yeah, it was probably right around that time. There was a lot going on. I'm not going to say that Penhurst was the more exciting. <laughs> Does that mean two. I was? Uh, yeah. You sounded hesitant. We'll call, we'll call them even for now. Um, it, it was a great experience. So if you're unfamiliar with Penhurst today, maybe you're not from the area. Uh, they have turned the campus of Penhurst Asylum into a Halloween haunted attraction and a very good one. Just like during Halloween season? During Halloween season, typical uh, September, October, maybe first week of November. These, you know, events like these can be found all around the country. I'm sure most of you listening have either attended one or are probably big fans of these events, uh, if I were to guess. So I I was able to go in October of 2015. Um, The administration building, the main building that you will typically see if you Google images of Pennhurst Asylum... Uh, that building in particular, they they totally renovated for their purposes. They refinished all the flooring. They oh. they refinished the walls. Uh, they they really did set it up to look like it would look when it was open in its heyday, if you could call it that. But it's not like the original flooring, the original X Y Z. Mainly like the bones are original, but the the decorative stuff has been refinished. I I don't know the answer to that. I would assume that they took as much original as they could. Mm, I would hope so. Because it is it was very from the photos that I've seen, the historical photos, uh, very very similar. Okay. Yeah. I'm big on stuff like that. I want it to be like the OG, the real experience. Well, we only had about five minutes oh. to actually appreciate before they started the quote unquote tour for the haunted okay. attraction. Okay. Um, it's it's a typical haunted attraction where you're pushed through. Uh, a kind of a winding maze of hallways and rooms and, you know, various different sections. Um, each section would be themed to something different. One room that we went into uh, had a, a doctor who in real... Like an actor. In real life, he was a, he was a live actor, but in real life he uh, did not have... Uh, he was missing both of his legs and one arm. Oh. 
Uh, so he decided to take advantage of his disability okay. uh, and uh, crawled out of a little hole in a wall. Oh my gosh! Definitely the scariest part of, oh, that's so of that crazy. night. It, they, but they did a, they did a fantastic job of really turning it into something special as a Halloween attraction. Mm, okay. um, and part of that is just it's dripping with history, mm-hmm. tragic yeah. history. But for a Halloween event, mm-hmm. that's not unwelcome necessarily. Right. Uh, so after the tour through the administration building, they took us down into the the tunnels beneath Penhurst. Okay. By far the scariest portion of that night. Um, the tunnels are exactly what you picture. They're dingy. They're a little bit claustrophobic. Uh, they're incredibly long. Again, you know, 1,400 acres, and they pretty much cover the entire campus. Wow. They go basically from one side to another and crisscross in to get to any building that you would need to. Uh, they were used by doctors to quickly wheel patients around and also to, to get around themselves without directly interacting with oh, the patients. Like for the staff to kind of move quicker from building to building? Right. Okay. Right, exactly. But the fact that, that it was only staff really that was allowed down there did not dampen the the fright the at fear all. The fear factor. The fear, fear factor. It was, it was still an incredible experience after that. Um, they took us into another one of the buildings, and they they gave us a flashlight, and they let us wander around and, and kind of investigate on our own. Um, I didn't We didn't experience any paranormal activity. We weren't necessarily looking for it. We were more just kind of soaking in the experience. Yeah, I would want to kind of delve into the history. I mean, it'd be spooky because it's a Halloween event, but like if if I were if I were to go back now, I, I don't know that I would do the Halloween event just because I I've already gone through it. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely would do either a guided tour or a self guided tour of the grounds. That was probably the coolest portion of, yeah. of that night. Um, just getting to explore and roam around. There were quite a few people, which probably didn't help the paranormal investigation yeah, aspect of yeah. it. Yeah. Well, do you think for what's your suggestion for like someone that's never gone? Because I've never been to Penhurst. So would you say start with the history, like a daytime tour where you can learn about everything or the a Halloween event or like some type of paranormal event? I would uh, say go to if you're into it, go to the Halloween event first. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to the daytime tour first, you, you definitely get a sense of the area. And I think it would take away from the. The, the, fear the fear factor, yeah, the, okay. the scares. Just a little bit. Um, it's still very scary. It's a totally different place at night from yeah, the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you are interested, um, Pennhurst actually is open to the public for tours and other events. They offer historical tours if you're not as interested in the paranormal side of things or the, the fright, the horror side of things. Um, I, I encourage everyone to take a look at their website for more specific info. Uh, and again, if, if you're too scared to visit at night, they do offer daytime tours. I think that one's for me. If you are planning on visiting Penhurst, uh, it's, it's important to keep in mind that it is a real abandoned, decaying complex, and it can be very dangerous. Mm. Uh, absolutely do not go without permission. Uh, guides do their best to keep you in approved areas, but depending on which tour you cho- choose, you may be left on your own to explore. And there isn't much oversight depending on which tour you go to. So be careful. Um, and, and also be respectful. absolutely be respectful. There was an, an enormous amount of tragedy that right. took place there. Right. Um, real pain and real suffering for people who are maybe still alive today. I mean, this yeah. asylum closed down in 1987. I mean, most of my family is older than older than that. Yeah. Uh, to put yeah. it in perspective. 
to just to mention some of the sources that we used this week, um, we have the previously mentioned Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance. We have the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, the book Penhurst State School by W.A. Phillips, and also the Pennsylvania District Court Archives, which include the uh, the court transcripts from when the asylum was was closing. Oh. I encourage everyone to read those. They're very interesting. They are uh, very gruesome. They mm, they do not hold yeah. back in the details. So, you know, uh, that's just a word of caution if you yeah. are going to read them. If you, are, if you are interested or comfortable reading that, beware. Yes. Uh, but but that is all for the history and a, a bit of the, the ghostly lore of Penhurst Asylum. Um, wow. We really hope you enjoyed. Uh, if you did, please leave us a review. Um, again, follow us on social media, uh, Chronicles of Curiosity podcast on Instagram, TikTok, uh, the podcast will be available on spotify uh, apple podcasts wherever else you listen to your podcasts it'll be available there so we we appreciate you listening and we hope you tune back in next week um anything you would like to add yeah and feel free to um like follow comment on any of our um, social medias we'd love to hear some ideas of any other lore any true crime anything like that that you would be interested in us looking into and telling you about So check us out. We're glad to have you. Yeah, we're always open to uh, new suggestions. Um, We have a very long list of things we want to cover, and we'll be more than happy to include something else in that list. Yes. Um, But that is it. Again, you guys, we appreciate it. This is something special that we're starting here. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, We are having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.